The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I want you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the book of Romans, chapter 6. And today we're going to look at some very powerful words that are written by the Apostle Paul and some that I really do think that will be a, a great blessing to the souls of God's people. Now today we come together to remember the resurrection of our Lord. And the resurrection was a real event. It's not something that was made up uh, by a few people, not a wild, fanciful dream of a few that just wished that it was true. But the resurrection of Christ is actually a, a very sure event because it was attested by so many people. Now, we read that, a little bit about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 just a moment ago. The, the resurrection of Christ is attested by uh, history. In fact, there's more about the resurrection that we can learn than many ancient events of history so that it's surer than many of those things that you read in just your history books. It's a, a well-attested event of history. There were many eyewitnesses to it. So it's not the tale of, of just one or two people. And they said, oh, we sure do wish that, that Jesus, this one that we followed, arose from the grave. But there were hundreds of people that did witness it. Witness it. All the apostles saw Jesus on numerous occasions. All of the gospel writers attest to it. And there in Corinthians, as I mentioned just a moment ago, the Apostle Paul tells us that there were over 500 people that saw the resurrected Christ at one time, and they saw him as he was there on the Mount of Olives, and he was resurrected to go back, or ascended rather, back into heaven. And the Apostle Paul was not present at the ascension. He was saved at a later time, but he did see Jesus, and that was on the road to Damascus, and the sight of Jesus and the Words that Jesus spoke to him caused him to give his life to Christ, and so he was converted to Christianity. And the resurrection is an attested event because of what was seen at the tomb. Very early on Sunday morning, the disciples came to the tomb, and there they found the grave clothes of Jesus lying there. And they weren't unraveled or torn all apart as if he had escaped the tomb or someone had come to set him free. Rather, those grave clothes were lying there very neatly in the tomb as if a body had passed right through them. And then the resurrection was a well-attested event because of the Jews. The Jews knew that they had to come up with some explanation, that is, those ones of them that had crucified Christ. They had to come up with some kind of an explanation, and so they paid the guards at the tomb to say that someone had come and stolen the body away. And so we know that the resurrection is a real event, not a fanciful hope of someone. It is reliable history given to us by reliable witnesses. And in past Easter observances, we've looked at these many different facets of the resurrection. I've taken you through at different times the different components, the empty tomb and uh, the hollow grave clothes that were there the denials of the Jews, and we've taken all of those facts, and I've given those to you to show that the resurrection was a real physical event. But today we're not going to talk about so much the real physical event of the resurrection, but rather we're going to look at this passage in the book of Romans today, and I want to talk to you about the spiritual implications of Christ's resurrection. There is a 
spiritual significance to it. And to understand it by reading the Apostle Paul, you really have to concentrate, you really have to pay attention because the Apostle Paul, the way that he writes and the arguments that he makes are not things that you can just sit there and let pass from uh, one ear and out out the other, just let your mind wander. So I need you to concentrate on what's going to be said today. You might want to take your, your pencil, your pen, and, and take out that listening sheet and take a few notes as we go along today. And I want you to really understand what the Apostle Paul has to say about the spiritual significance of Christ's resurrection. Now, a few years ago, and uh, of course, I, there are many visitors here, and those of you that are members, I don't really expect you to remember all the sermons that I preached. Uh, I can't remember most of them. But I remember Easter sermons, of course, because this is a big day. A few years ago, I preached on the sign that was given of the resurrection. There was only one sign that was ever given of the resurrection. Now, I'm talking about a past sign. Before Christ arose, there was only one sign. And interestingly, that sign is not in the New Testament. Sign is in the Old Testament. And that sign is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And it's about the story of Jonah and the whale. And I'm not going to preach about Jonah and the whale today. But Jesus said that that was an example of what would happen to him. He said as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so he would be three nights and three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus said that is the sign. And when people asked him to give another sign, he said there aren't going to be any more signs. I'm not going to give you any signs. If you don't believe this one, then you won't believe any other signs that I would give you. So he said that is an indicator that he was going to rise from the dead. But an interesting thing about this is that, that Christ did not give us another sign prior to his death and his resurrection, but he did give us a sign that came afterwards. There's another sign that was given. And that sign, the symbol of his death and his resurrection, is a sign that's given specifically to the Lord's church. And that is the sign of baptism. Now Paul explains this sign in Romans chapter 6. Now, I know you've been up and down a lot, but I like to stand when we read God's Word. So let's stand. We're going to read our verses here this morning. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse number 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of of his resurrection. Now, I want to read just a few more verses and keep these in mind. We won't actually reach all of these, but you'll hear the theme as we go through. Verse number 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. Thank you for those who have come today. And we just ask, Lord, you'd help us to understand your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I want to give you a little bit of background on this passage as we begin the study today. Uh, The comments that I'm going to give you now are are very slight, very meager, because Romans is a very deep theological book. This is why I told you that you really do need to pay very close attention to what's said, because Paul is very, very deep in his theological discussions. And so I'm only going to be able to uncover just a little bit of what's been said previous to Paul's writing of Romans chapter 6 to help us to understand a little bit why that he writes chapter 6 and says what he does. Now, he begins chapter 6 in verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Uh, The apostle had just been discussing salvation in chapter 5, the way of salvation. And there he argued the point that our salvation in Christ is not based upon anything that we do. But rather, we are justified freely by God's grace. It's only by God's grace, not by anything that we do. Now, as the first point of your outline today, I want to emphasize this to kind of get us into the discussion of what Paul is speaking of here, and that is our justification is by the grace of God. And that was a very critical point for the Apostle Paul because he was arguing against people that said that our right standing with God must in some way be based upon the good things that we do for him. And that's an attitude that's always been in the heart of man. It's always been people's belief that the way that you become right with God and the way that you're going to be able to go to heaven is to do some righteous act, to do some good thing or accumulation of good things. And then God will see the good that's in you. He'll see that you're a good, holy person. And because of that, he'll save you and he'll take you to heaven. Well, that was actually Adam's thought. That was the very first thought that Adam had when he sinned against God. He said, I've got to do something to make up for my sin. I have to uh, show that I'm sorry for my disobedience. I need to make amends for what I've done. And so when Adam had sinned, his eyes were opened to the fact that he was naked. He was no longer innocent. And so his first thought was that what I must do is to cover up my nakedness. I must show God that I'm, I'm a pretty good guy, I'll, I'll take care of this, my disobedience was wrong, I understand that, but I need to take care of this thing myself. And so what Adam did was to sew aprons of fig leaves to cover up Eve and himself. And so if you want to know where the idea originated, that there's something that we can do, that there is a sacrament that we can keep, baptism, Lord's Supper, or some other sacrament that someone might make up and want to name. If you wonder where, wonder where this idea came from, that you could be saved from sacraments or you could be saved by, saved by sacraments or saved by giving money to the poor or helping at the homeless shelter or being just a really nice fellow, you can trace that back to the Garden of Eden. You can trace it back to Adam who made his clothing from fig leaves. Now, if you look back in chapter 5, you'll see there that Paul discusses the sin of Adam. 
And he states that all of us became guilty in Adam. Because of that first sin that he committed, all of us became guilty. All are made sinners because of what Adam did. And every person follows in Adam's footstep. All of us are sinners against God. And that's a problem for us because it means that we're under the condemnation of God. And I'm not saying that you or I that we are responsible for the particular sin that Adam committed, but we are responsible because we don't do anything different from what Adam did. All of us have sinned, and so all the world is guilty, and that's what the Bible teaches. Now, Paul goes on to show that God has provided a way by which the guilt of our sins can be taken away, that God has offered a free gift of justification by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in his explanation of how that you're saved, he never says anything at all about you earning the gift that God gives. He says you don't have to do anything for it. But rather he says that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you do that, then God justifies you from all of your sin. And without getting too complicated about that, there's a way that God does that in which you are totally passive. You don't see it happening, but it actually takes place in the spiritual realm when you trust Christ. Now, I want to tell you what takes place in the spiritual realm. You can't see this happening, but what God does, all the sins that you have committed are transferred to Jesus Christ, and he takes the guilt of your sins, and then in return, he credits you with the good and the righteous life that he lived. And so all of your faults and your failures are charged to him and his goodness and his perfection is transferred to you. And that's essentially the meaning of this theological term that's called justification. It's a legal term and it's the transference of sin and righteousness. That's a two-way transaction. Our sins go to him and his righteousness goes to us. And that's a great transaction, and it takes place completely by the grace of God. So I want you to understand that, first of all, that when you trust Christ, when you put your faith in him, this is the transaction that takes place. And there aren't any good deeds that you can do to make that happen. Now, the problem that Paul faced in this passage was that the news seemed to be too good, too good to be true. It just seemed to be too good to be true because the people that he writes to are, are used to a system that we've been discussing for many, many months in the, in the book of Matthew. He, they were used to a system that said the way to be right with God is what you've always heard. The way to be right is to live a good life. The way to be right with God is to try really, really hard and then God will accept you. And when Paul said, well, no, no, it's not that way, it's by the grace of God, then the immediate reaction of these people was this. If God saves by his grace, then I can do anything that I want. I can live any way that I want to live because God's grace is always going to cover my sins. That's why Paul wrote Romans chapter 6. In verse number 1, he answers the objection. Shall we say that because of grace we can continue to live in sin? And he emphatically denies that by saying, God forbid. We don't magnify the grace of God in that way. And so he answers the obvious objection to the doctrine by refuting the idea that God is magnified by the more that we sin because it takes more grace to cover our sins. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? The argument is if we sin more, then there needs more grace, and so more grace means God is more gracious. 
But Paul says that's not the way that this thing works. You don't exalt God in that way. And so he proceeds to tell us here why Christians do not continue to sin despite the fact that they know that God's grace will cover all of their sins. So we see here, this is why Paul said, God forbid, may it never be that a Christian who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ would go on living in sin. And what Paul is setting us up here for is the understanding that our legal standing before God, our legal standing, that justification, that's not all that there is to the story. Our justification has to do with the outward man, that legal status, but that is not the change that takes place in us inwardly. Now, it takes the free grace of God to cover our sins, and yet... We do not continue to sin because God has brought about in the Christian an inward change. There's a new desire. There's a desire to stop sinning, not to do it anymore. And as I said, the change happens to us inwardly. Now, the resurrection then is not just a a physical event, event, but it has spiritual implications to it. It has implications for the inward part of our being. And that inward part is actually symbolized in baptism. Now, the next thing that I want to show you is our mortification. Our mortification is to kill sin. Paul says in verse 2 that we are dead to sin. And there he's speaking of our guilt of sin. We're dead to it. There's no way that sin can ever condemn us again because the guilt of our sin was actually placed upon Christ. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He says, who his own self, they're speaking of Jesus, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that is on the cross, that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. And so Christ took our sins with him to the cross and he died with our sins there. And Peter says that because of this, we are dead to sins. And isn't that the same thing that Paul says in verse 2? We're dead to sin. So if we're dead to it, his argument is, how could we any longer live in it? That's our mortification to sin. Now, mortify uh, comes from a Latin word. It means to put to death. In the Bible, mortify means to put to death. It means to subdue and to restrain. And when sin is mortified, it means to put that sin under another power. And the other power under which that sin is placed is the power of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross when he took our sins to the cross with him. And Paul says that because of that, sin can no longer reign or sin no longer has dominion in the life of a Christian. And so when Christ died, all of our sins were put under his power and our sins died with him. And that's our mortification. I want to show you how that relates to the resurrection. There's a very close connection to the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. I mean, can we all agree with that? We all agree that the death of Christ is inseparably connected to his resurrection. And that close connection is the reason that Christians cannot go on living in sin. Now, in verse number 3, Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. And when we study scripture, we, we do need to look at all the expressions of the Bible. All of them are very important, and this text is no different. We see how Paul states the verse here. He says, know ye not? Or as we would say, don't you know this? Jesus often spoke that way when he was conversing with 
Nicodemus about the new birth. Do you remember that uh, they were talking about regeneration? They were talking about being born again and how that a person is saved. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you are a ruler of the Jews and you don't know this? And as Jesus was talking about Pharisees and to the Pharisees, they were supposed to be the teachers of the law. And yet he looked at the, the, the ignorance of the scriptures that they had and he said to them, don't you know this? Don't you understand this? And sometimes as preachers and teachers of the word of God, we have Christians who've been saved for a long, long time and we just have to stand back and scratch our heads and say, you've been a Christian how long? And you don't understand this? You don't understand what I'm talking about? Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's speaking in the same way. So he is assuming here that anyone who has heard the public preaching of the gospel of Christ and has believed that gospel, that person would be baptized. And that person would understand the reason that he was baptized. In fact, Paul leaves no room here for the assumption that there is any believer who has not been baptized. I mean, that's just automatic. Believers are baptized. Now, what he's about to say here is critical information, and it's unthinkable that a believer would not know why he was baptized and what happened and what goes on and what that pictures. Now, I know that there are many churches today that don't actually emphasize baptism, and the ones that do emphasize it for the wrong reason. And they might tell you, oh, well, you need to get baptized so you can be saved. You have to be baptized in order to get into heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. We don't get baptized to be saved to get into heaven. We are baptized because that is an obedient act to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what happens in baptism. It is extremely important. It doesn't save us, but it is important. And number three, you need to see this, that our baptism is actually our identification with Christ. Among all the reasons that you want to be baptized, this is the real crux of the matter, and that is in your baptism you are identified with Christ. Now he says in verse number 3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And that's the picture that Paul is striving at here. In baptism, we are represented as dying with Christ. And so what happened to him, we're showing what happened to him is what happened to us. Now you think back to Adam. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually. Now, later he was going to die physically, but immediately upon his sin, he died spiritually. And we also died in Adam. And that's because Adam represents us. And when we place our faith in Christ, we died with Christ. We're taken to the cross with him and we die in him. And so as Adam represents us in our sin, so Jesus Christ in his death represents our death to sin. And baptism is a picture of that. Going down into the water is a picture that Christ died and being put into the tomb is saying to us that he was actually dead, that he really died. You don't put live people into a tomb. So Christ was really dead. And so when you step into the waters of baptism, you go under the water to identify with Christ in his death. You're saying what happened to him is what happened to me. And it's important for you to be baptized because you want to show what's happened to you by faith. You died with Christ. Now, there are many reasons that people would put off baptism. Sometimes those reasons are compelling. But the Bible does not give any space to unbaptized Christians. When they were saved, 
their baptism was an immediate step. An example of that, we go to Acts chapter 16. We see Paul and Silas preaching to the Philippian jailer. Upon his faith in Jesus Christ, they took him, it says, the same hour of the night, and they baptized him. In Acts chapter 8, you have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And as soon as Paul, or Peter, I'll get the right one, Philip, lots of peas in there. It was Philip. Philip was speaking to the eunuch, and as soon as he understood what faith in Christ was, and he believed in Jesus Christ, he took him and he baptized him. Now, there isn't a more sublime picture for a person who's trusted Christ than to say that I want to be baptized. I want to go into the water. I want to show what's happened to me. And so Paul is just assuming here, he's speaking to Christians, so he's assuming that anybody who has heard the gospel would have been baptized. Well, we come to the the point in this text that needs to be driven home, and that is what connects this to Easter Sunday. And by the way, I'm not so enamored with the term Easter. I'd rather say Resurrection Sunday. This is Resurrection Sunday, and here we're getting close to the thing that ties all of this together. Now, fourthly, our resurrection is to new life. Verses 4 and 5 say, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of of his resurrection. So we died in Christ, we are identified with him in his death, and now this close connection comes to bear that Christ's death is inseparably united to his resurrection. And I think all of us as Christians, we agree with that. We never talk about the death of Christ and leave him in the tomb. We don't leave Christ in the tomb, and we don't leave Christ on the cross, and that's why he's not hanging over there. We don't leave him on the cross. We don't leave him in the tomb. We have to preach the resurrection of Christ. Because without the resurrection, there is no benefit. Now, Paul makes that very clear in the fourth chapter of Romans. He says, who was delivered? Christ was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Well, how's that justification related to the resurrection? Well, he means that justification could never have been accomplished unless Christ arose, that his resurrection is the assurance, that is the guarantee that the sacrifice of Christ actually worked. That God raised him from the dead to show that he had accepted the sacrifice. And what that means for you and me is that our faith actually has a real basis. Our faith is in him because he arose from the dead. And so the death of Christ must be inseparably inseparably connected to the resurrection. And that's why when the apostles preached, they always emphasized the resurrection. Now, can you imagine what it would have been like in that, in that time if, if the apostles had just preached the death of Christ? They said, now I want to tell you about this person a long time ago who died. And they just stopped there. And they didn't say anything else. Well, people would say, so what? He died. Well, Paul, Paul or one of the apostles, but he was crucified. And they would say, so what? He was crucified. There were thousands of people that were crucified. There were times when the Roman roads were lined for many, many miles with people on crosses and dying on crosses. So what if he died? Well, this is why the disciples always mention the resurrection because that's the thing that people are going to be keenly interested in. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost 
And he says, him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. In Acts 4.10, it says, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. Acts 4.33, And with great power, the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In Acts the 17th chapter, the apostle Paul, preaching in the city of Athens, it says there, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And then in verse 32, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. In Acts 25, 19, the Apostle Paul affirmed that Jesus was alive. In Romans chapter 4, the same book that we're studying now, in the very beginning of the book, he says that he was declared, Christ was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And so it was the resurrection that intrigued him, them. So what that he died? He was resurrected, and that's what makes the death uncommon. That's what makes it unlike any other person who's died. That's the resurrection. Now, going back to our text in verse 4, Paul brings that point to bear, that the death of Christ is certainly linked to his resurrection. He says, you've died with Christ, and you were buried with him in baptism... And just like as Christ was raised from the dead, so you have been raised to walk in the newness of life. And baptism shows that too. We're buried with Christ in baptism, but I don't put people under the water and leave them there. And Shelley is glad to find that out. I don't put them under the water and leave them there. I'm going to bring them out of the water. Death is inseparably linked to the resurrection, so they better get out of the water. Now, now here is the key verse for the argument that Christians do not go on and on in sin. Yes, they have been justified. Yes, they have died to the guilt of sin. Yes, they are connected to Christ in his death, but they are also inseparably linked to his resurrection. They're raised to walk in the new life. Now, first we talked about justification. Justification is a point in time. Justification takes place when you put your faith in Christ. That's a point in time, one single point. You believe him, and then you are justified. But then there's this other doctrine that just comes gushing out of the passage in the next part, and that's our sanctification. So, fifthly, our sanctification is to walk with Christ. And our sanctification is that ongoing daily process in which we learn to walk with Christ. Now, the the death to sin guaranteed that we would live a life of holiness to God. And so Paul has just answered this gnawing question of why that a person who's been saved by the grace of God would not go ahead and play on God's grace by continuing to sin. He'll not do that because he died with Christ and also he was raised to walk in the new life of Christ. And what Paul is telling us here is this is inevitable. This has to be. You can't have a person united to Christ in his death who is not united to him in his resurrection. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? You can't have a Christian that continues to live in sin. You can't have a Christian, you can't have that 
Christian living in sin any more than Christ would stay in the tomb. And you can't have that happen any more than I would leave a person under the water in the baptism and walk away from it. Now what this does for us is bring up a frightening dilemma for many, many people because there are many people who say that they are Christians and yet they continue to live in sin. Now I want you to understand something. Easter is a real test. Resurrection Sunday is a litmus test for Christianity. And you say, how? I mean, if I come to church on Easter, that means I'm a saved person? No. No. The test is next Sunday. And next Sunday. And next Sunday. And the one after that. And the one after that. Actually, the test is every single day of your life. And this Resurrection Sunday is just the thing that brings all of that into focus. This is the day that you come and you hear me talk about the resurrection of Christ. And I take you to Romans chapter 6 and I lead you through this passage. And I talk to you about baptism and I talk to you about how all of this is inseparably linked to Christ's resurrection. This is the time that all of that comes into focus. And the consequence that Paul is trying to show us here. There is an inevitable consequence of the fact that you have been justified, that you have believed in Christ, and the inevitable consequence is that if you have been justified, you will be sanctified. You can't separate those, just like you can't separate the death of Christ from the resurrection of Christ. So a believer who has been united to Christ in his death must also be united to him in his resurrection. His his likeness he's in the likeness of his resurrection and that is the new life in which you're supposed to live now here here's where it gets real difficult for us what if paul were standing here today preaching in my place and you probably wish that he was and i do too but what if paul was standing here today and he looked over this body of christians and he was aware of what you do how you live what you do in the rest of your life What would he say if this is not the case with you? That you don't actually live a holy life. That every other day but Easter is lived to satisfy you. And every other day but Easter is lived not to serve God, but just to satisfy you. What would he say to that? What would his conclusion be? Well, his conclusion is, you never were united to Christ in his death. It can't happen. You don't show fruits of the resurrection. You don't show anything that's actually happened to you in the death of Christ. Now, folks, that's a very sobering thought. If you've not been united to Christ in his death, you will not be in his resurrection. Now, we go to verse number 5, and it says, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of of his resurrection. Now this is the verse where Paul brings the physical characteristics of the resurrection into view. We've been talking about the spiritual. We've been talking about a process that you can't see. Regeneration, justification, sanctification, all those things go on in the spiritual world. You can't actually see those. Now you see the results of them, but you can't actually see what's happening. You don't know what God's doing in you and to you in that process. But here, in verse number 5, he jerks us back to the physical reality that if you don't know Christ in his physical death, then neither will you be with him in his physical resurrection. 
Now here he's talking about the physical resurrection of the body, that Christ was raised and he was in a glorified body. He was given a body that was fit for heaven. And you, if you have been linked to Christ in his death, you shall also rise from the dead and you will be given a body that's fit for heaven. Now according to this passage, before that can happen, there has to be some evidence that a spiritual change has actually happened to you. And the evidence of that is a new life. It's a life that's not like what you lived before. It's a life in which you are a different person because this new life is characterized in holiness and righteousness. And if you're looking for the evidence of it, the Apostle John gives us in one place, as he does in many others and other writers do, 1 John 2, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? You are in him, you're in his death and in his resurrection if you walk in the newness of life as Christ walked in his life. And the evidence of that is we obey Christ, we walk as he walked. So it becomes rather simple for us. If your life is not characterized by the holiness of God, then you have not died with Christ, and you have not risen with him. Now, at this point, I need to stop, not because I'm done, so don't get your hopes up, I'll be done in a minute, but I have to stop here because some of you might think, well, the pastor has got off to preach a message that's intended for all the lost people that are in the group, if there are some, or this is pointed at visitors to Brian Baptist Church today. And I might say this, that I hope with all my heart that all of you know Christ and all of you came to church because you wanted to hear something about Christ. And if there's some other purpose than that, then I hope that you understand now that faith in Christ is the only way that you'll receive the benefits of his resurrection. Faith is what puts us into the death of Christ. And if you have been put into the death of Christ, then you will also be in his resurrection. And the chief benefit of all that is salvation. It's life in heaven rather than destruction in hell. All that's true. But my main purpose is not for any visitor that's here today. That's not my main purpose. What I really, what I really want to talk about or want you to notice is that Paul did not address this passage to unbelievers. Now, they certainly can benefit from it. If it brings them to faith, they benefit, but this is not for unbelievers. You remember what I said about verse 3? That the apostle Paul assumed that these people were baptized, so that means that they have made a profession of faith. You don't baptize people that haven't believed in Christ. And so he assumes that these are people that have believed in Christ. Now, if you were to go back to chapter 1 and verse number 7, if you want to do that, Paul tells us who he's writing to. He says, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are saints that he's writing to. Not dead saints, living saints. And technically, there are no dead saints. They're all either living here or they're living in heaven. So there aren't any dead saints. But all of them, all of them have believed in Christ. They've been justified by, by Christ. And Paul's writing to believers. And so what I'm speaking to primarily is believers or people that say that they are believers. 
So are you confused about what's going on here? You've shown by your baptism that you have been united to Christ. You say that you believe that he had died, that he died and arose for you, and you, you say that that's true for you, but were you really, were you really incorporated into the death of Christ by a true faith in him? And if you have been, then where is that evidence in your life? Do you actually have a different life than you had before? And sometimes I wonder about church members because I had this nagging feeling when I watch some of the things that you do that, that you don't really have a godly conscience about things. And I wonder if your baptism was really a true confession. Now, according to Paul, there should be no mistake about who you are and what you are. The resurrection is not something that's just about history. It's not just about eyewitness accounts. And it's not just about forensic evidence of empty grave clothes. But the resurrection addresses your justification from the penalty of sin, your mortification from the presence of sin, your identification with the death of Christ, your resurrection to new life in Christ, and your sanctification in holiness as the character of that new life. And so how is it with you? What happened to you because of Christ's resurrection? Is Easter to you just a day about the past? Or are you actually living in the resurrection right now? Is this your life? The resurrected life of Christ? And if you're still living in your sins, then you don't live with Christ. Those who die with him... This passage teaches those who die with him are resurrected with him. You can't divide it. And that's how Paul goes to the heart of the matter of people who say that they are Christians, but they don't actually live like it. According to him, it can never be. And so if there were people in the church of Rome who said, well, we're just going to go on living in sin. We aren't worried about what we do because we know the grace of God covers our sin. After all, we're saved, aren't we? And Paul says it can't happen that way. No Christian will ever provoke God with sin in order to get more of his grace. And so if you find yourself there, if you are always the Christian that the pastor's saying, what's he going to do next? I have some of those. That, I, that the pastor just says, what in the world is this guy going to get into next? What's the next thing I'm going to have to deal with? You know, we expect that from lost people. We expect lost people to live like that, but we do not expect it from the people of God. We don't expect it from those who say that they are believers because in a believer, the desire to sin is no longer there. Now, I'm not saying that you don't sin because you know that you do, and I know that I do, but I'm saying that doesn't characterize our life. We can't continue to live in it. It just won't happen that way. And so I hope that you understand this. This is, not, this is not a message towards visitors, particularly visitors. I hope you benefit from what I've said. But I also hope that you'll pardon me for opening up some internal family business of the Brian Baptist Church. On Resurrection Sunday, you might not expect that. But the pa- as the pastor of the church, it is my primary job to encourage the members of this church to have a real heart for God. Now, Easter can be a really, really good time for pretend Christians. It's a really good time because you can go to church and you can expect to hear the normal Easter sermon. And most of you know what those are like, the normal Easter sermon. And maybe you want to hear somebody talk about Easter lilies today. Or or maybe you want to hear somebody 
You know, the strange thing that, that some preachers preach, and I've read so many of these kinds of sermons, that Easter is all about spring. Easter is about God watering flowers and trees and bringing new things to life. Easter is about the life of the planet. Easter is not about the life of the planet. Now, Tuesday is Earth Day, and if you want to celebrate the life of the planet, have at it. Just do all you want to do. This is not the day to celebrate the life of the planet. This is to celebrate and talk about Jesus Christ who is living in you. God living in you, not the planet in you. And because of Christ's resurrection, there is a new life that we can live in him. And I hope that you understand it better now. Now, you may leave here today. You'll leave here today either one of two things. You'll leave as a real Christian or you'll leave as not a Christian at all. That's the only choices. Either you're a Christian or you're not. There's no in-betweens here. You are or you're not. And if you are, the evidence of a Christian is going to be there. If there is no evidence, then I'd suggest to you, Get down on your knees and get right with God today. Believe in Jesus Christ. Ask him to come into your heart, to change your heart, so that you can be like him. That's what the resurrection is really about. Paul says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you for him coming to the earth and dying for our sins on the cross of Calvary, taking all of the guilt that was upon us, all of the sins that we owed, all of the punishment that we so richly deserved. And he took that all to the cross, and our sins died with him there. And we thank you so much, Lord, for that truth. And now that we have believed that, and I pray that everyone here does, now that we have believed that, then we should be walking in the newness of that life. Not just Easter Sunday, but every day of our entire lives. That's the proof that we truly do know you. Lord, help us to be an example to other people, to live as you would have us to live, and we can show by our lives that a change has taken place in our heart, that we're different people than we were before. Lord, speak to some soul today. Cause them to believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org